are some South Florida schools controlled by China's Communist Party? Is Cuba's Communist Party relinquishing some control? And your septic tank is getting tanked. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Padgett. In the next hour, we'll examine Florida's decision to yank voucher money from two South Florida private schools because it says their owner is a shill for China. Is that true, or is this just another political stunt from Governor DeSantis? We'll also speak with a high-ranking Cuban official about why the communist island is allowing more economic freedom, but not political liberalization. And we'll look at Miami-Dade County's ramped-up efforts to get rid of septic tanks. All that coming up right after the news. Paget, welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. This is a special pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup. You can make your donation to support programs like this by calling 866-247-9576 or by going to wlrn.org. Last week, the Florida Department of Education cut off access to state school voucher money for four of the state's private schools. Two of them, the Sagemont Preparatory Schools, are here in South Florida, in Weston. The reason for the action? The schools are owned by a company, Spring Education Group, that in turn is run by an investment firm, Primavera Holdings, that is based in Hong Kong and has operations in China. Because of that, the Florida Education Department concluded that these schools must have ties to the Chinese Communist Party and are therefore, quote, an imminent threat to the health, safety, and welfare of their students and Floridians. So this is a legit is this a legitimate security move or just a get tough on China political stunt by Florida governor and struggling Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis? Joining me now to help answer that question is Anthony Mann. He's the South Florida Sun Sentinels politics writer. Anthony, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. So let's cut to the chase and ask the obvious question here. Can Florida really say that the firm that owns these private schools is somehow a shill for China's communist regime? Well, they're certainly saying that it has ties to the Chinese Communist Party. And they're saying, as you said in the introduction, saying it's a threat to the students and the public. But they haven't offered any evidence to back that up when asked uh, for what uh, what they used to justify that, the governor's office referred questions to the Department of Education. Department of Education answered with a passage that was on the school's website that describes the ownership being based in Hong Kong and having those uh, business relationships in China, nothing else. So we really don't know, and they're not saying and haven't been responding to additional questions. But if that's all they're offering, it, can one say that it's legitimate then for them to take this action against these schools for, quote, being connected to a regime that is a threat to, to the United States? Well, there are certainly a lot of people connected to the school's parents and people who uh, are in the Western community who say it isn't legitimate. And they say, of course, there could be some smoking gun that we haven't seen any smoke from yet. But right. nobody I've spoken with has seen any evidence of this or gotten any indication that it is legitimate. Right. Um, and of course, the, we should say that the school has said that it does not have any ties to communist 
Party of China or the Chinese government or any other government. Right. Now, what's the Sagemont Preparatory School administration's response been to, to this? Well, they're not saying a lot. They put out uh, a limited statement last weekend, and then they also put out a somewhat longer statement last weekend to family members in which they say a couple of things. They say they weren't contacted in advance, so they didn't know what this was about. And they emphasize they have no ties to the Communist Party of China or any other government. And they said that they would work with their the parents of the students who are receiving these vouchers to make sure they can remain in school. Uh, we don't know what work with means. It's a pricey school. It has tuition that tops $20,000 a year. And even with the $8,000 uh, in voucher money, it's still expensive. Right. Now, two other private schools also got their access to state school voucher funds pulled in Park Maitland up in Orange, Orange County. Are they owned by the same Chinese uh, investment group? Yes, they are. And their websites have exactly the same statement on them, which is the uh, quote unquote evidence that the state is providing that there's a problem. Now, let's look at the background here on all of this. Governor DeSantis has staked out China as one of his big foreign policy issues on the presidential campaign trail, right? Yes. And he talks about that. He talks about, uh, the, I think it was point one in his economic plan, talks about uh, having the United States fare better against China than it has. And he's constantly sending out fundraising pitches to his supporters, citing uh, doing battle with the Chinese or besting the Chinese. So this is something that uh, does uh, appeals to Republican primary voters in other states. And actually, there's some polling that suggests that that's true. But this doesn't mean that there isn't reason for concern when it comes to China's efforts to infiltrate educational institutions, not just in the U.S., but around the world, especially in Latin America, for example. I mean, it's Confucius Institutes, for example, have come under criticism for feeding students more Chinese propaganda than Confucian learning. So is, is DeSantis sort of standing on some firm uh, ground in that respect? Well, he has gone after the Confucius Institute separately, and this is part of a multi-pronged effort that he has been pushing in the last couple of years, including more recently limits on uh, Chinese nationals buying property, certain property in the state. I mean, this this is something that there is some widespread concern, but we're not sure just what the level of concern should be. I mean, look at TikTok. I mean, there are there are many, many people across the political spectrum that have concerns about TikTok, and it can't right. be used on school grounds in Florida anymore. Right. Now, still, finally, Anthony, if this does turn out to be just a political stunt, or as some critics have called it, a, a witch hunt, um, the governor's critics will say it's just one more of many of his um, it, it, when it comes to Florida education, most recently his attempt to whitewash how slavery is taught. In just the 30 seconds we left, have left, how does that end up affecting the state in, in your mind? Well, it reinforces a negative view that some people have, and particularly Democrats and more progressive people have in the state, but it also might um, enhance it in the view of people who have been moving to Florida in the post-pandemic era and uh, have boosted uh, Republicans and conservatives and uh, Governor DeSantis. We just, we really don't know. Right. Anthony Mann is the South Florida Sun-Sentinel's political writer. Anthony, many thanks. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. Thank you.
Still to come, my conversation with Cuba's Vice Minister of Foreign Relations. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. This is a special pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup. You can make your donation to support programs like this by calling 866-247-9576 or by going to WLRN.org. This week, scores of private entrepreneurs from communist Cuba visited Miami to get tips from their Cuban-American counterparts and maybe network some investment relationships. It was another sign that Cuba's government has come to the realization that private enterprise is about the only thing now that can save the island's wrecked economy. Officials in Havana, of course, blame the U.S. economic embargo against Cuba for that disaster, but either way, it's forcing them to consider deeper changes. I spoke about this with Carlos Fernandez de Cosillo. He's vice minister of Cuba's foreign relations ministry. He joined me from New York. Mr. Vice Minister, thank you for speaking with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start with what happened Sunday night when the Cuban foreign relations ministry reported that two Molotov cocktails were thrown at the Cuban embassy building in Washington, D.C. Fortunately, no one was hurt, but this is the second such nighttime attack on the embassy in three years. What more can you tell us now about the investigation into the attack and who was behind it? Well, the investigation is in the hands of the U.S. law enforcement authorities. It's not investigation being carried out by our embassy. And we don't know at this moment how far that investigation has gone or who is behind it. What we do know is that there are people in the United States that have a history, either practicing or organizing terrorist actions against Cuba. But it, is, it would be for us to jump the gun to start making accusations without, without facts and without, without the input of the investigation that should be done by law enforcement authorities in the U.S. Mr. Vice Minister, in spite of this attack, how would you describe bilateral relations between Cuba and the U.S. at this moment? Do you feel they've improved under President Biden, especially after President Trump's harder line against Cuba? The the line that is being applied is a loyalty to the policy of reinforcement of the aggressive measures against the Cuba's economy. And the government of Biden has kept the, the most aggressive of those in place. In spite of that, there have been some steps in areas like migration, some level of cooperation in law enforcement, including in terrorism, by the way, and in environmental science, arts, culture, education, which are important, but they are not what one can say the essence of the bilateral relationship. Well, that brings me to Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel's speech last week at the UN General Assembly, in which he criticized the U.S. for what he called its merciless economic warfare against Cuba. Diaz-Canel was obviously referring to the embargo. Why do you feel the U.S. keeps the embargo in place after more than 60 years? That's a question that we normally try to ask uh, the U.S. government. Cuba is not an enemy of the United States. There's no hostile action by Cuba against the United States. There are political disagreements. Yes, we have political disagreements with reality in the U.S. as the U.S. has it with Cuba. And that's part of international relations all over the place. The reason seems to be, we're told by politicians in the U.S., that are political calculations. That is difficult for them because votes and there's an election next year, all of which seems to us illegitimate reasons to continue to have a policy aimed at strangling the economy, the livelihood of the population of a whole country. 
But the U.S., including the Biden administration, insists that it's hard to lift the embargo when Cuba remains what it calls a repressive dictatorship, one that has more than a thousand political prisoners locked up, most of them people who took part in large anti-government, pro-democracy protests two years ago. Would it not be a positive step toward lifting the embargo if Cuba were to release most, if not all, of those prisoners? Thousands of people participated in a, in a demonstration in Cuba over two years ago. Thousands. And a few hundred were prosecuted. The ones that were prosecuted were not prosecuted because of what they think or what they said or what they shouted or what they expressed. They were prosecuted for vandalizing, for attacking people, for assaulting a police station, for overturning police cars and civilian cars. And that in Cuba is a crime, as I suspect, is in the United States. I understand. But for the record, international human rights groups say between 500 and 700 were prosecuted for the 2021 protests and that many were merely marching or demonstrating. People have been put in jail for the events of January 6th in the United States who were not even present at the place just because they were accused of inciting people to go to Capitol Hill on January 6, 2021. At the same time, Cuba's serious economic crisis just keeps getting worse, and we're seeing record numbers of Cubans, especially younger Cubans, leaving the island. Do you feel all the blame for that rests on the U.S. and the embargo, or is the Cuban government now recognizing its own economic mistakes and mismanagement? There's a combination of factors. First, we have the effects of COVID. And you have to remember that we shut the country. That depends on tourism as a main source of income. And we shut it totally. We have not recovered yet. But there's an extraordinary and artificial impact in that, which is the U.S. economic blockade, which is aimed at making the economy unworkable. And then you add to that, which is also true, that we have issues of structure in our economy that we need to improve and that we are trying to transform under very big difficulties. And we have had mismanagements, inefficiencies in what we do, which we recognize that we have to improve. That, of course, brings us to the dynamic growth we're seeing in Cuba's private sector since the communist government legalized those small and medium-sized businesses known as PMAs two years ago. This seems an area where the U.S. and Cuba can find common ground. Both governments have approved U.S. investment in Cuban private enterprises, but Cuba says it's waiting for the U.S. to soften the embargo and make bilateral banking available, while the U.S. says it's waiting on Cuba to present clear investment rules before it can do that. When do you see all of this getting resolved? I think there's a a misunderstanding. Cuba is not waiting for the U.S. to act in any measure. The growth of the private sector in Cuba is a national decision by Cuba. We're taking on our own regardless of what the United States does. We have conceived it, the private sector, since the past few years as part of our economic development, as, a, an, as an actor in the Cuban economy. Now, this sector also suffers from the economic blockade. But Cuba does not need a bilateral banking relationship with the United States for the private sector in Cuba to prosper. Most of the Cuban private sector tells us they do need it. But there's been a tendency in the past for the Cuban government to let the private sector grow and then all of a sudden clamp down on it and rein it in. Is that sort of thing finally over? What we have approved is medium and small-sized enterprises. We're not, at least for the moment, conceiving in our economic overview to have big monopolies and big concentrations of property and big concentration of wealth and big concentration of capital. What we want is to an expansion, as many as possible, and at a level playing field for all, for for many to have opportunity to flourish, not to have a few who concentrate and become uh, monopolies in any sector. That is our aim. Now, this is a new reality in Cuba. 
and regulation is coming behind it. Including clear rules for foreign investment in the private sector? Yes, we are trying to regulate what is becoming the normal reality. The corporate law still has to be approved, a law for corporations in Cuba. But it's following what's happening. When we began this three years ago, there was no clear picture of where this was going, which were the sectors that were going to grow, which were the territories in the country where they're going to grow the most, which was going to be their export exposure, because many of them work within Cuba, but some need to import and some wish to export. That reality has to show itself so that we can regulate something that is uh, appropriate to what's really happening. Last week in New York, President Diaz-Canel also told Cuban Americans they may be welcome in the future to own businesses in Cuba. That would seem to represent a big thaw between Havana and Miami. I'm surprised by what you're saying, because I was at that meeting and the president never said so. Um, Whoever reported that either was not present or is not, uh, or did not get a good recollection of what happened in that place. The president said that they are welcome, not not just uh, uh, as of this meeting, that we have in place a policy that he personally has defended that invites Cubans that live abroad in the U.S. or in Europe and Latin America or in Asia to invest in Cuba, to be part of the economy and to participate and contribute to the Cuban economy. That is a message he ratified at that meeting. Opening actual business in Cuba is for people who reside in Cuba. Cubans that live abroad can participate like a Canadian, like a Spaniard. But if you want to establish a company to be a resident in in the place. And this is a law that is not only uh, particular to Cuba. Many countries around the world, if you want to establish a company, have to be a resident in the place where you are. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. Mr. Vice Minister, we've been talking about the growth of the private sector in Cuba. Do you feel that the economic liberalization that's taking part there could lead to more political liberalization in Cuba, especially, for example, letting parties other than the Cuban Communist Party run in elections? We, we are not aiming at that. If you call liberalization having money participate in politics and having parties serve as machines so that politicians can be moved and then corporations and the wealthy have the capacity to finance and buy political favors. That is something we're not conceiving in Cuba. We're not looking at uh, at that. But you still don't think a healthy pluralism could come of it? We believe that if parties, which happens in many countries, become machineries so that money and capital can be the engine Political advancement, that is something we are not considering in Cuba. We don't think it's healthy or will be useful or appropriate for our country. I see. Mr. Vice Minister, I also need to ask you about the recent controversy regarding Cuban mercenaries going to fight for Russia against Ukraine. The Cuban government insisted has broken up a ring that was trafficking those Cubans to Russia Critics have said the Cuban government actually knew before about the mercenaries going there to fight and encouraged it. How do you respond to that? And what is the state of Cuba's relations with Russia now after Havana distanced itself recently from Moscow's Ukraine campaign? This is a ring that was first uh, detected by us, followed by us, and that was treated as through different um, violations of the law. One is human trafficking, in which you penalize the trafficker and the person who's trafficked you treat as a victim. For us, that was not enough. And we incorporated another law, the use of another law that we have in Cuba, which is against mercenarism, which is which prohibits Cubans to take up arms against another country. So 
we apply the two so that we go after the trafficker and we also go after the person who is willingly attempting to involve himself in a military conflict in another country. Before we made this public, we spoke with the government of Russia, with which we have a good relationship. We spoke with the government of Ukraine, with the U.S. government, with the European Union, with several other governments in which we talked about this. We explained our concern and we also asked for information if they had. But it was just a few months ago that Cuba was signing major investment deals with Russia in the hope of getting some economic support, especially for fuel, which your government this week admitted Cuba just doesn't have enough of to meet its needs. This Russia-based mercenary scandal hasn't compromised that friendship at all? Our relationship with, with Russia is, is a good relationship. Uh, we don't believe it's, it's damaged, even though on some issues we might not have an exact point of view. Vice Minister Fernandez de Cosillo, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you very much for this opportunity. That was my conversation yesterday with Carlos Fernandez de Cosillo. He's Vice Minister of Cuba's Foreign Relations Ministry. Still to come, Miami-Dade County is racing to get rid of septic tanks. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. This is a special pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup. You can make your donation to support programs like this by calling 866-247-9576 or by going to wlrn.org. If you're like me, you've still got a septic tank in your backyard. In fact, 120,000 of you in Miami-Dade County still do. But those could get yanked out of your property sooner than we think now because Miami-Dade is speeding up its efforts to hook us up to public sewage systems. The reason is mainly environmental. As sea level rise keeps seeping into our real estate here, it's turning those septic tanks into toxic time bombs. But there are issues involved, especially the cost. Converting to a sewage system can cost the typical homeowner about $15,000, just one more financial burden in a metro area that already has a deep affordability crisis. Joining me now to look at Miami-Dade's shift into high gear on septic tank removal is Alex Harris. She's the Miami Herald's lead climate reporter. How are you, Alex? Doing great, Tim. Happy to talk about septic tanks. <laughs> That's the spirit. So Miami-Dade County can now put this campaign into high gear because it's got a lot more money for it now, right? Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, money and focus. This has been a big issue in Miami-Dade County since the 1950s. We've seen old reports that have proven that this was going to be a big deal, but the big difference is a focus, attention, and almost $500 million in grants that the county has won in under three years. Wow. This is obviously not a new project. Miami-Dade's been trying to convert us from septic tanks to sewage systems for decades now. But why has climate change, not just sea level rise, as I mentioned before, but the heavier rains we get these days because of climate change, why has all that made this effort so much more urgent? Why has it made septic tanks really an unviable option now? So the way septic tanks work is there's sort of a concrete box under the ground and our waste goes in and over time it filters out, goes into the dirt and soil underneath and, you know, water kind of makes its way back into the aquifer. That requires a couple feet at least of clean, dry dirt that that waste can filter through. Sea level rise is not just happening on the coast, it's happening inland when the groundwater is rising or when it rains in a really hard rain bomb and the soil gets full of water, you don't have that couple feet of dry dirt that you need. So all of that waste just sort of gets carried out. It goes into Biscayne Bay. It can even end up in your front yard and that's real gross. 
Yeah. In your report this week, you mentioned that the county's sewage waste system is considered outdated. Is, is Miami-Dade behind the rest of the state, if not the country, when it comes to getting rid of septic tanks? I mean, some 60 million Americans still have them, right? Yeah, septic tanks are still popular around the country, but the problem is that Miami-Dade is uniquely vulnerable. We have less dry ground beneath our septic tanks before we hit the groundwater than anywhere in Florida, and we also have more septic tanks than anywhere in the state. So we have not done the work to get rid of them, and we have the shortest timeline to get rid of them before sea level rise makes the tens of thousands we still have underground useless or even dangerous. Good point. Now that Miami-Dade has the resources to go full bore on this, how long will it take to yank those 120,000 remaining septic tanks out of our yards and hook us up to county sewage? That is a really good question that a couple people have taken guesses at. Uh, county Commissioner Raquel Regalado, in a piece I recently wrote, told me she's really optimistic and thinks it can happen in a decade, which is very optimistic considering each of these projects can take some significant time. And that 120,000 depends on you know people buying in, like willing to spend the money, willing to go get a grant, willing to do the work, but also it doesn't even count all the commercial septic tanks we still have in this county. So it's a lot of work. It has to get done in the next 10, 20, 30 years. And uh, we'll see if we do it. Now, given the incursion of sea level rise here, where is the need for pulling these septic tanks out the greatest? Any particular community they're focused on? Yeah, so the county actually has a really good map showing you know, these spots that are most vulnerable because you know not all 120,000 are equally at risk from a really big rainstorm or a high king tide or anything like that. It's mostly the spots in really low-lying areas, particularly close to the coast. So Little River, El Portal, but also South Dade has also got quite a few that are pretty low and um, pretty close to the coast. So they're, they're targeting the most vulnerable first, and they're also targeting those that are the closest to county existing county sewer lines, so they're cheaper and faster to connect. Right. Now, I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about Miami-Dade County's ramped up efforts to get rid of our septic tanks. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. So Alex, let's talk about the cost of all this, not to Miami-Dade County, but to homeowners. Now, switching from a septic tank to a public sewage hookup ain't cheap, right? Yeah, no, you said it earlier at the top of the hour, but $15,000 is the estimated cost for a homeowner to connect. And that's private. That's not usually carried by county grants or funds or loans or anything. It's, it's up to you. Yeah. And, and what about the monthly cost they'll experience once they're hooked up? I mean, are they going to watch their Miami-Dade water and sewer department bills take a big jump? It does go up. I mean, you are paying a monthly fee rather than waiting, you know, gambling every five years for a five to $900 to pump out your tank, depending on how often you do it and depending if there's any issues. But it shouldn't be tremendously high. Um, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it is should be very comparable to your water bill, I believe is what I've heard. Uh-huh. So is, is there a concern on the, in, in the county that lower income residents here, though, are not going to be able to, you know, meet uh, the, the 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 cost uh, you know that they're being asked to pony up for. Absolutely, that's a really good question for most people in this county. Who among us has fifteen thousand dollars cash just ready to spend on something like that? Right, well, most a most of us are saving that for a new roof. Yeah, exactly. Especially with insurance rates. But no, when it comes to help making sure that low income or vulnerable populations can be the ones to afford it, uh, the county has been going out really aggressively for grants, and cities yes. have also been going out for grants as well. 
El Portel, Miami Shores, and the county have all been sort of working to help people fund their end of it. And in a couple of the county's recent projects, including some along like the uh, southeast or northeast coast of the county, they have indeed covered the entire cost to the homeowners to do their half of the work. Okay, well, that was really my next question. I mean, for a lot of people here, this is going to mean taking out a loan. Uh, because as you pointed out, it's probably not discretionary income they've set aside. They're setting it aside for things like roofs, et cetera. And as a result, I mean, I, I wanted to ask, you know, is, is there aid that lower income households can turn to for this? Something, for example, like the LIHEAP assistance they can get for electricity bills. I mean, you, you've talked about how they can get grants for the initial hookup. But is there anything they can look forward to like LIHEAP for their electric bills to help them pay for the higher water and sewage bills they're going to be looking at? Yeah, so um, LIHEAP is a low-income home energy assistance program the federal government does where every quarter you can apply if you're low-income to have them cover your electricity bill. It's a really popular, really useful program that a lot of people rely on. And in recently, in a couple of years, the federal government has introduced the LIWAP program, which is the low-income water assistance program. Ah, well, and okay. that okay. is going to start kicking in soon so that people can go to the state of Florida, go through the regular places they get their energy help, and they can start getting help with water and sewer bills. Well. Okay, so not just for drinking water, but also for sewer uh, needs as well. That's I'm not sure, but I assume if it's going on the same bill, that would probably be a good argument. But yes, you are able to get that help uh, from the county or from any social service agency you normally go to for help, and they can help cover those bills even if they get more expensive. That's that's good to know, and that's something people should should really check out. Finally, Alex, un until those of us who you know who who still have septic tanks get converted. Given the sea level rise threat, would you suggest we start doing things like regularly putting septic system treatment products like Ridex down our toilets? Well, I'm not sure. I also have a septic tank, even though I'm up in Broward County. So I'm also paying very close attention to what the best things I should be doing. Um, my septic tank person told me that I should be doing Ridex uh, once a month. They also yes. told me, you know, keep an eye. If, if there's a lot of flooding, you have to watch to see if anything backs up, keep a very close up idea outside for stinks or any other flooding or backing up. And if you see a problem, call a professional immediately to get it pumped out so it doesn't become worse. All great advice. Alex Harris is the Miami Herald's lead climate reporter. Alex, thanks as always. Thanks so much, Tim. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Finally on the roundup, the South Florida journalism community has lost a trailblazer, Carmel Cafero. She was a reporter at WSVN Channel 7 for more than 40 years. Back in 1973, when she joined the station, which back then was known as WCKT, she was the first female journalist they'd ever hired. Carmel was always on the story and was committed to getting her South Florida audience the most truthful story. She covered everything from the terrorist attacks of 9-11, Hurricane Andrew, the opioid crisis in Broward County, and government corruption across South Florida. After her retirement in 2016, Carmel moved back to her home state of Louisiana, where she passed away last Friday at the age of 76. The South Florida community will always remember her. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news, the vice president of radio, and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maris. Julia Cooper answered the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend, and thanks for listening. Gracias. 
Messi, obrigado.